Hello and welcome to the Peace Love Plans Podcast. I'm your host, Marco Knox. I have a question for you. Can you imagine living your life without a car? Think about that for a moment. How would your life change? Would you still be able to do the things that you enjoy and that you need to get done? Seems pretty daunting, doesn't it? I know it does for me. I mean, I can remember getting behind the wheel for the very first time. I felt free. I felt like I could finally go further and see new things. That feeling of excitement and freedom didn't last long, though. Before I knew it, I was stuck in traffic, dealing with insane drivers, paying for expensive maintenance, all while saving money so I could buy a new car when the one that I was driving stopped working. As crazy as it may sound, the aforementioned freedom and excitement was best when I was growing up and riding my bike around the neighborhood with my friends. Can't we just go back to that? Of course we can. Allow me to introduce you to Ryan Van Duzer, a man that has never owned a car. And to add to it, he lives in the mountains of Colorado. Try living there without a car. But as you'll soon hear, he manages just fine. Seems wild, I know. But that's just the beginning, you see. Besides Ryan not owning a car, he's ridden a bike from Honduras to Boulder, Colorado, across the United States twice, and down both the East and West Coasts. And besides cycling, he's known for his altruistic lifestyle, his amazing YouTube channel, and getting people to get off of the couch and experience life by way of the great outdoors. So now that you have a feeling for who Ryan is, let's dive into this episode titled Life at 15 Miles Per Hour with Ryan Van Duzer. Ryan Van Duzer, welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm honored to be here. It's great to meet you, even though you're just two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. I'm psyched. (laughs) That is fantastic. So you're coming to us from a place that I would love to call home one day, Boulder, Colorado. Man. Boulder is a pretty amazing place. I'm very fortunate that I was born and raised here. This has been my home ever since I was a baby. And right now, it's like 75, sunny, no clouds. The mountains are green. It is springtime and glorious. Living the dream. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hear a lot of amazing things about Boulder. And ironically, you are the third guest from Boulder I've had on the shore and the fourth from Colorado, representing really hard the Rocky Mountain State. I love it. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, when I was 19, I actually lived in Littleton. How far is that from Boulder? It's not too far. It's like... 40 minutes or something. That's not bad. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, I fell in love with the mountains. I swore one day I would return. Maybe all these guests that are that are from that area is the universe kind of telling me, hey, man, you need to make good on that promise and come back. Yeah, well, welcome. <laughs> so let's dive into this thing here. I've really been looking forward to meeting you and speaking to you because to me, you're a guy that is living life out loud. And I mean that in the purest form, man. You're authentic in yourself. I'm very loud. (laughs) But no, no, like like in the purest form, like you're just living a life that you're excited about and you're letting others feel and see your light, which is beautiful. And also you're inspiring thousands of people around the world. So let's start here. Let's let's go back, man. Take me back to your childhood. You were born and raised in the Rockies, as you mentioned. What was life like for you growing up? Life was great here in Boulder. And Boulder is such an outdoor playground that luckily I fell in love with Mother Nature at an early age. You know, this was before video games and we had a TV, but it's not like TVs now where everybody's just glued to it all the time. We were just outside all the time, dirt under my fingernails, having fun, skinning my knees, riding bikes. And as I got older here in Boulder, I started exploring all the trails and the foothills of the mountains. 
on bicycle by myself. And it was such a, a great feeling of freedom where I could just take my bicycle, be human powered and go on a long adventure and, you know, catch snakes. And it was just, I felt like a little Huck Finn, you know, it was awesome. <laughs> so you go through school, you're out of high school and you went to the university of Colorado, right? Yep. So you graduate from the university of Colorado and you join the peace Corps and head to Honduras as a volunteer. Yeah. What fueled that decision? What was the catalyst for that? So growing up, I've always been involved in lots of school projects like high school and stuff, working with at-risk youth and working in Boulder, specifically with a lot of the Mexican population, the immigrant children, helping them with after-school programs and, you know, helping them with their homework. And, and I always loved that. And I wanted to take it to the next level. And I thought doing Peace Corps would be amazing to actually like really go for it for two years and put in all my heart and soul into a project and really try to make as big of a difference as possible. And that's essentially what fueled my decision to join. Service has always been a big part of my life. I grew up in Boulder, single mom, four kids. We didn't have nearly as much as most of my friends. And so we benefited from people helping us. And I always felt like, okay, whenever I grow up, which I still haven't, I want to help other people. And that's really, that was one of the, the foundations for joining the Peace Corps. And it was an incredible experience. Take me through some of those experiences. What were some of the, I'm, I'm sure there were some really high points. There was probably some times where it was challenging. Share with us a little, a little bit of what that was like for you. Yeah. So Peace Corps, for everybody out there who might not know what it is, it's a two-year yeah. volunteer program that was started in 1961 by JFK. And his whole idea with the program was to spread essentially goodwill around the world and technical support. And so there's lots of different types of volunteers. There's volunteers that help with like water engineering projects to bring water to small villages in Africa or Latin America, wherever it is. And then there's people that work in small business development. So they work with small women's groups to help them develop their business so they can, you know, make a living. So it's not just the husband that's out working and, my project specifically was youth development, so I worked with kids. And I'd had some experience in Boulder working with the Mexican immigrant kids, and I have some Spanish language skills. And uh, I loved it. I mean, yes, it was definitely a challenge. I lived in a small village in the middle of nowhere. I was away from my support system in the United States, my mom, my family, my friends, totally on my own. And just for the first time in my life, I had to figure everything out for myself, really. You know, Peace Corps, you know, does a bit of organizing and they, they match you up with a counterpart organization to work with. And uh, but for the most part, I got to be really creative and decide what projects I thought were important. And so I worked with kids. I, I coached boys and girls soccer teams. I mean, I went into schools and taught like, you know, basic, basic writing skills. And we started school newspapers. I got a bunch of cameras donated from UNICEF, like video cameras. And we started like a, a once a week youth TV show on their public access network there in the tiny town of La Esperanza. But more than anything, I spent a lot of time with the kids in my neighborhood, you know, giving them piggyback rides and hanging out and doing art projects. And, and it was, it was just a lot of, a lot of fun. It was like good old wholesome fun. I mean, there was no, I didn't, you know, there's no TVs and, None of the video games and iPads and all that stuff that distracts young people today. It was just, it was, it was really a beautiful time in my life. 
That does sound beautiful. No TVs. Wow. Yeah. That that alone sounds beautiful. Although yeah. I wouldn't be able to watch your YouTube, so that, that would be wrong. That's true. That's true. <laughs> now, it sounds like the community really embraced you, and, and it, was, it was family, right? I mean, by the time it was time to go. Yeah. So it took a while to become part of the community. I lived in an indigenous population mm-hmm. community, and they were at first, they were like, who is this crazy white guy in our town? What's he all about? And it took many, many, many months. You know, at first I started working with the children and they probably would go home and tell their parents about me and they gained a trust for me, you know, after a long time. And by the time I left, yeah, it was a definite family. And it was one of the hardest days of my life. It was one of the hardest and most exciting days of my life. When the day I left after two, two years saying goodbye to all these kids who I had grown to love as like, not my own children, but we were like family. Yeah. Oh, there were a lot of tears that day. I can imagine. So you mentioned it's time to leave, right? After working two years in Honduras. And you did what most people would do. I mean, it's, you know, pack the bags, say goodbye to all the people you've grown to love. Yeah. And then head to the airport and catch a flight home, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I did not do. <laughs> what did you do, Ryan? Like that lead in, by the way. So I thought after two years living in a tiny village, getting on an airplane and going home would have just been reverse culture shock to be back in Boulder, Colorado. And it's just a matter of probably five hours. Honduras really isn't that far. And I didn't want to go home that quickly. I really wanted to process what I had done while I was there and also have time to dream about the future and what I wanted to do with my life. So I thought the best way to get home would be to get on my bicycle and ride it from Honduras all the way back to Boulder. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> ride your bike from Honduras to Boulder, Colorado? Wait, yes. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> thought that was a good idea. My mom thought it was a horrible idea. Lots of people told me that I was going to get robbed or run off the road. And for me, I couldn't have been more excited. And the, one of the main reasons why is I trust the people. I trust Latin people, you watch the news and they, they pump you full of fear that Mexico is so dangerous and it's just narcos and banditos and all that. And I was like, nah, it's, it's not that. And I know that I'm going to have a great time riding my bike every day, all day for three months, 4,000 miles. I knew it would allow me a lot of time to think. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. So you're able to process your two years in Honduras and slowly transition back into what life was going to be like in the United States after that much time. And I, I watched some of these videos and they're beautiful. I love how every time you crossed a country, you stuck the flag on the bike, right? Exactly. Yep. Until you finally got to the United States and it's like, okay, we're in the United States, but gosh, it's so much further to go. I mean, you've got Texas still. And, and it was really cold by the time I got into the United States. I left Honduras in September so all through Central America and Mexico, it was pretty warm. But once I got into northern Mexico, actually, like near Chihuahua, it was late November, early December, and it was freezing cold. And that's, not, that's no fun on a bicycle when it's just windy and freezing cold. But overall, it was the experience of a lifetime. I met wonderful people. Truck drivers would stop and give me food and help me navigate with my map, and they'd show me the safest roads to go on. I'd show up in small villages and people would be like, whoa, where did this gringo come from? You know, they invite me, invite me into their homes and feed me dinner and I'd get camp in their backyards. 
And this happened every single day, all the way home for three months. I never had a bad experience at all. It was incredible every step of the way. And, you know, I would wake up in the morning and not know where I was going. This was not a guided trip. I would get up on my bike and just start riding north and see how far I got. And then sometimes I would end up in a town and maybe get a $10 hotel. And sometimes I'd be in the middle of nowhere and I'd camp off the side of the road. And I just did that day after day after day. And it was such an invigorating experience. That is wild, man. So, so now you're back in Colorado, right? Yes. And you're getting acclimated to your new life. What was next for you once you returned home? What was on the docket besides resting your legs, I imagine? Yeah, it was the first time in my life where I didn't have a next. Growing yeah. up, I always knew, okay, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, college. And after college, I knew I was going to do the Peace Corps. But after Peace Corps, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I didn't have plans for the first time in my life. And that's when I got creative. And I was like, okay, I loved riding home from Honduras. I had a little Sony Handycam video camera with me and I documented the adventure. And I was like, I want to be a storyteller. I want to get paid to travel in some way. And that's where I put all my effort. And so I went to a local public access channel in Boulder, Wayne's World style, and pitched them idea, an idea for an outdoor adventure show. And they said, yeah, sure, this is public access. You can do whatever you want. You're not getting paid. Anybody can put a show on public access. And I was like, sweet, I'm going to do it. And that's, when, that's essentially when my career started. I began a show called Out There. And the whole idea was to inspire people to get up off their couches and challenge themselves in some way. And that's, that's what started it all. Now, you know, from I've worked for the Discovery Channel and Travel Channel and other networks and, and today doing YouTube videos. So what was that, circa 2007, 8? What, what year was yeah, that when you got I back? I got home in 2000, December of 2005. So I started the public access show in 2006. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You really are a legend in this game. I mean, you're the OG, man. Yeah, I had videos on YouTube pretty much right when YouTube came out. You look at some of my oldest YouTube videos, they're pixelated and horrible quality, and that's when YouTube started. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the Discovery Channel series that you that you touched on just a second ago. What was it called? Out of the Wild? It was, the was wild. That the Walk me through that concept and how you got involved with that. Yeah, so my dream when I started the public access show was to be like a TV host. And so public access was just a stepping stone to build up essentially like a resume. Mm -hmm. And so I would do casting calls. I would go to New York. I would, you know, do auditions for different shows. And the discovery thing wasn't exactly like a show for me to host, but I got some sort of a, you know, a casting for this adventure in South America. They were, they were very vague about it. They said like, do you have what it takes to survive the wilds of South America? And I was like, yeah, probably I do. So I made, <laughs> I'll do it. So I made like a short audition video and sent it in. And this actually, at the time, I was riding my bike from Vancouver, Canada to Cabo San Lucas. So I was doing this while I was on my bike every day, filming these videos, sent in an audition video. Long story short, I was chosen to be on this survival show where they dumped nine of us into the jungles of Venezuela and we had to live off of the land for a month. And it was by far the most difficult mental and physical challenge of my life. It pushed me to the edge, my man. 
Yeah. I, and anyone listening, I highly recommend watching this series that you have on your channel because it's true. I mean, people, you said what, nine, nine people were in total? Yeah. What was it like if, if you couldn't take it anymore? Like you're ready to tap out, right? You had an emergency button that you could push and someone yeah. would come get you and take you to safety. So oh. if your life was truly endangered, right? Yeah. And you almost got to that point, didn't you? I did. I sure did. And so this show isn't like Survivor. There's no million dollar prize. This essentially is an experiment to see how far you can push yourself. And they casted nine tough people. We had army rangers, survivalists, and everybody going into the casting was like, I'm never going to quit. I'm not going to push the button. You know, and it's easy to say that when you're strong and well fed and, and you've slept plenty. But once you're day 17 and you haven't slept at all and you haven't eaten and you're getting like stung by insects all night long, it wears on you, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, I think for me, it was about day 19. I had uh, like collapsed a couple times, like completely fainted just from lack of nutrition. And I started to think, and this is just, this is not good for my body in the long run. This is dangerous. And I was really close to pushing the button. I mean, I wanted out of there so bad. I wanted comfort. That's what humans want. When we're in pain, what do we want? We want our mommies. We want our bed. I almost pushed it, but I didn't because all of a sudden there's a flash flood and a couple of our teammates are on the other side of a river and we needed to go help them across the river. And, you know, it was this dramatic sequence. And it was in that moment that I realized, okay, this isn't just about me and my suffering. We're a team here. If I leave, that's going to negatively affect the people there. Like we need to do this together. So that's what kept me in the game. So you just dug deep. You found You found a way. Yeah. And I think survival or any type of difficult situation, whether it's a hundred mile race or bike ride or going through tough times in a relationship, I think it's, it's all mental. I think the human body is capable of amazing things, even when you don't feed it. As long as your mind stays balanced and, and positive in some way and you have something to look forward to and you feel like a connection to other people, you can get through anything. Yeah, you know, I've, I've interviewed a couple of people that have done amazing things. Have you heard of Robbie Ballinger by any oh, chance? Yeah. Guy that ran across America. Yeah. So I'm talking to Robbie and he says, you know, it was day six or seven. And I, I just mentally, I wanted, to, I wanted to quit, right? Which I'm sure you've experienced in a lot of the ventures you've done. He had this breakthrough and he said his body just got used to it. It's like, oh, okay, you're not trying to kill me. We can yeah. do this now. And from there on, it was just on, right? Yeah. Do you experience things like that? I watched. I was watching some of your videos last night. I think it was the Rocky Mountain Transcontinental. Is that what it's called? The Trans Rocky Trace. Yeah. Yes, and you're running this hundred mile, hundred twenty mile race in yeah. stages, right? Six stages. Yeah. And I mean, you've done some amazing things, but in the middle of this, I think day three, you're like, I have not experienced pain like this before. Yeah, it hurt. <laughs> How did you break through? Is it the same kind of thing? Your body just adapted in the middle of it. Yeah, your body, everything kind of adapts. And since I did this very difficult survival, you know, project in Venezuela, everything is easy. Not easy, but if I can, if I can survive off the land for 30 days, I can do a hundred mile race because I know there's a finish line. Yeah. The part of Venezuela is we didn't know when it was going to end. And mentally, that's very difficult. So when I'm in the middle of a race or the Transalt Rockies, like you're talking about, yes, everything hurts. But I know that there's an aid station three miles away and somebody's going to give me whatever I want and food and even massage me. 
So, I mean, as far as like difficult situations in life go, there's an easy out on those ones. You just keep moving forward one step in front of the other, whether or not you're running or not. And I can get fairly competitive and I want to go fast, but I know that I'm not going to die. Yeah. And that's the goal every time you go into one of these, right? Don't exactly. die. Yeah. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, and as anyone that's watched your channel knows, you've traveled the world and experienced some truly beautiful places. And we could talk all day and not get to all of your journeys. Yeah. So let's focus on one more of these adventures before we start to bring this home. Can we go back to the archives for this one and talk about your ride across the United States on a beach cruiser? Yeah. I mean, a beach cruiser, dude. <laughs> Yeah. What were you thinking? That's, exactly. That's, that's the response everybody had. What are you thinking? <laughs> the, the point of that ride was to show people that you don't need to have the latest and greatest and most expensive gear to do a challenge. Or even in this case, you know, ride your bike to the grocery store, ride your bike to work. The whole mission was to inspire people to ride their bikes more. And if I could ride this three-speed cruiser all the way across America – hey, maybe you can ride your bike to work more often. And let's think about the environment and how we're all part of this ecosystem. And, you know, exercise is a great thing. You know, we Americans are so conditioned to wake up, brush our teeth, eat breakfast, run out the door with our car keys and jump in our car. That's just like the way things are. We don't need to be driving as much as we do. I think 90% of car trips are within four miles of our homes. Those can easily be done on a bicycle. No doubt. So that was essentially the mission as I was going across the country was to inspire people to ride their bikes more. And it was a great adventure. Yes, it was difficult. I didn't have, you know, a lot of gears like I would usually have on a, on a ride like that. I was pulling a heavy trailer behind me, but it was really awesome. I loved that experience. And it was a full rigid bike, right? You didn't have any squish. No, no suspension. Oh, at all. Yeah, no, that was, it was, yeah. That bike is hanging up in my, my house now. It's kind of a museum bike. As it should be. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. I just can't even wrap my mind around that. What was the uh, the route? What, what route did you take for this so route? I started in Oceanside, California, which is near yeah. San Diego, and I went to Washington, D.C. So I took a pretty southern route, a little bit through the Midwest, once I got into the New Mexico, Kansas area, and then Ohio mm -hmm. and Illinois, West Virginia, all that. But the hardest parts were obviously going up mountains because without gears and pulling a trailer, it's hard to get those bikes up mountains. You know, flat stuff and downhill was fine. But I, I met so many wonderful people on those rides. I mean, the reason why I love seeing the world by bicycle is it just puts you in places where you normally wouldn't be if you were in a car. You know, you stop in these small towns. And this was my first time really seeing small town America. You know, I hadn't traveled all that much in America and the United States at this time in my life. And I really found it charming and fun. And again, just like in Mexico, people would invite me into their homes and feed me dinner and I'd camp in their backyards. It was a great way to fall in love with the United States. Was this uh, route kind of planned out or was it much like your ride from Honduras? Just get on the bike and go and you'll figure out it as, as you go. This route was fairly planned out. I actually started... There's a big endurance bike race called Race Across America, where guys mm -hmm. ride across the country in about eight or nine days. And I took their route book and followed their route. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. So yeah. you may not be affiliated with anymore, but that was a new Belgian brewery, right? Uh -huh. it, was a, it was a Belgian cruiser. Yep. And I want to come back to that. But before I do, you mentioned something about 
too many people just drive their cars within four miles and they don't really need to do that. Yeah. Now, you personally, you don't own a vehicle, right? I have never had a car in my life. Never, not once. Not once, not even close. I didn't get my driver's license until age 32. And I got my license because I needed, I was hosting a TV show at the time where they needed me to be like in a car saying, okay, now we're going to go over here and check this out. And so I, they needed me to be able to legally drive. And that's the only reason why I got a license. And I learned just enough to pass the test. I'm a horrible driver. I don't drive like almost ever unless I'm like the designated driver. And it's midnight. and There's no other cars on the road. And I'm just like, I can just take my friends home. But yeah, <laughs> that's great. You know what? I, I have a friend that did the same thing uh, for different reasons, but he's, he's never driven a car either. And he says, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. He rides his bike everywhere. He loves it. So yep. now, now the new Belgium thing, it's, it's ironic because shortly thereafter you quit drinking completely, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it after that trip or pretty close? I mean, that was, that trip was 2009. I didn't quit drinking till was it 2015. Okay. So I had a few more years of some hard partying. <laughs> and, good partier. Yeah, I was a really good partier, and that was the problem. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, working with New Belgium was great because every time I got to a city, we would throw a party, and it was free beer for everybody and great times. And I even did a show on the Travel Channel about going to microbreweries all across the United States. So alcohol, beer mainly, was a big part of my life. And I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? This is not serving me anymore. This is not healthy, you know, and I'm making the dumbest decisions of my life I'm making while I am drinking alcohol. So I'm going to cut this out and see what happens. And when I first quit, it wasn't like, okay, I'm done forever. I was just going to like give myself a month. And so I did that first month and I was like, wow, I feel better than ever. Then another month, another month. And then now it's, it's almost been five years. And I tell people all the time, it was the, it's the best decision I ever made. Only positive outcomes have come from the decision not to drink. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my wife and I were looking at your videos, and as we scrolled back through the years pre-quitting drinking, yeah. we both looked at each other, and I said to her, I go, he looks better now. He looks sure. younger now sure. than he did 10 years ago. For sure. That, that has to be the alcohol. My face was way puffier back then. Inflammation is gone. Oh, totally. Yeah. And when I drink, I mean, I party. Like, I, I often joke that when I do things in life, whatever it is, athletics or business, relationships, turbo speed, I have one speed, I turn it and I go for it. And that's the same with alcohol. Like, if you were going to come out and get drinks with Ryan Van Duzer, everybody was going to have the time of their lives and we were going to party and take shots and go crazy. <laughs> How I can't even imagine. So, I mean, I've, I've had my fair share of parties as well. And it's challenging getting up the next day. I can't mm-hmm. imagine getting up after drinking that much and getting on a bike and going, okay, I'm going to knock out 100 today. Yeah. You know, like, I was, I was uh, good at it. And I was good at putting my body through pain. And uh, it, was, it wasn't all that healthy, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, like I said, it was the best decision I've ever made. Yeah, I don't want to stay on it too long. Good on you for doing that. And and you're not in your face about it. I, I I happen to stumble upon, I think, one video on your YouTube about where you just kind of come out and go, hey, this is why I've done it. But yeah. it's not like you're going around saying, hey, everybody needs to do this and this is why. It's just, hey, it's a personal choice and I'm better for it. And I lead by example at exactly. this point. 
Yeah, you know, and I can be, I can go to bars, I can be around people that drink. You know, I'm not like fiending for the next one. It's just, uh, luckily for me, it was very easy to stop drinking, and so I'm I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. So I know that when you're in Venezuela, not to backtrack too far, but you mentioned that you had to eat some bugs to survive. Yeah. And I saw another video where you're eating something really crazy. And there's probably more that I haven't discovered yet. What is the craziest thing when you're out there trying to survive that you've you've had to consume to kind of keep pushing forward? Well, like the visually grossest thing that we ate in Venezuela were grub worms. And grub worms are just giant maggots. Oh. And they they look horrible. I mean, you could never, you know, hand me a maggot now and be like, here you go, bon appetit, enjoy. But in the moment, they tasted, I swear, they tasted like creamed corn. Oh. They were just popping your mouth. Oh. So good. <laughs> so that was definitely the grossest thing, but um, very nutrient rich. And an interesting point, going into this adventure, I knew that I was going to have to eat some, some bugs and probably fish and stuff. And I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian since 2003. And I knew that I was going to have to essentially break from being a vegetarian in order to stay alive. I mean, there's no way we could have found enough calories through plants. We barely even ate plants out there. We had, we found a couple hearts of palm, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of plant stuff that we could eat. It was interesting all around. Plus it'd probably be a little sketchy. I mean, you're in Venezuela, you're not sure what plants to identify. All of a sudden you eat one and there's a mistake. Whoa. <laughs> we did a little training before the show started and local native Indians showed us which plants we could eat which bugs we could eat i mean what they did say is like if the bug is really brightly colored don't eat it it's probably poisonous <laughs> so we, we thank you ugly maggot looking bugs uh, i really regret asking you that question about right, the bug right. man no. <laughs> we <ate> termites <laughs> you've seen like the discovery channel show where they they show like chimpanzees sitting on a termite mound like yeah. putting in blades of grass and pulling out like a whole like celery stick of termites and we would do that no kidding yeah uh the termites are gross too yeah they pop just like the grub no they don't termites taste like dirt it just it tastes like you're that you know they're crunchy and hard and they have the exoskeleton and you know and they have really at least in south america they're really strong mandibles and they pinch you so you have to like pop their heads off before you eat them otherwise they bite your tongue and you get all bloody it's yeah uh, all right, let, let's 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 straighten this thing out here for a second. Let's let's bring this back in. I'm sorry, sorry I took you there, Ryan. So I'm looking at your website off to the side here, and you've got some really cool. Some of your favorite adventures is what you actually call it out as. Out of all of these, what is your favorite adventure? Out of all you've done, I mean, I'm sure that's really hard to answer because they're all amazing. But if you had to pick one. Oh, one adventure that I, oh man, it's, uh, I'm going to go back to the Honduras ride. That's yeah. the one that kicked it all. It was, I was young. It was all brand new. I had never done anything like this where I was completely on my own in the middle of nowhere, relying on myself for everything. I was 25 years old, straight out of the Peace Corps. And every day was so exciting, you know? And so I, I would say that that adventure is the one that when I look back, I'm like, that was pretty cool. That was very unique. And it was the instigator for my life 
of adventure and storytelling and essentially started my career. Yeah. What about the uh, Maine to Key West trip? I haven't had an opportunity to dive into those videos, but yeah. I'm intrigued by it. Have, living in Florida and being have gone to Key West several times, I'm intrigued to find out yeah. what that trip was about and what you thought of it. That was fun. That was so. That was my second bike tour after the Honduras ride. It was a couple yeah. of years later, and I totally had the bike touring bug. And I was like, "What can I do next?" And the East Coast was it. That was really fun. You know, I, I my favorite parts were probably Washington D.C. South. There's much much fewer people. The roads are a lot clearer. It was just easier to navigate. Way up in the Northeast was just a little bit too crowded and nutty. Yeah. But I, uh, Florida was amazing. I loved Florida, especially going from Miami through all the keys on those highways and bridges connecting those islands. That was really neat. The seven mile bridge, just looking out and just vast waters. Totally. Yeah, that was pretty special. You know, even going through your town, St. Augustine was really cool. We stayed there a night with some family friends. And, uh, you know, I like Colorado is great, but it's it's not tropical. We don't have the ocean. So when I'm in Florida, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Like it's a completely different world. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should house swap for like a week, man. You can ride all my bikes. I'll go ride all your bikes and we can document it, man. It'd be like switching Deal. houses with Doozer. Deal. You got it. Deal. We'll send uh, over the contract and ink it. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of all this, uh, what's going on, I think it'd be hard for you to get here. I'll ride my bike. Oh, there you go. See? I mean, what do you mean it's hard to get there? Yeah. Coming from a guy that rides his bike everywhere. I'll get there. Don't worry. Yeah, true. We'll just, we'll cross in, in, in Kansas somewhere. And yeah. Go, all right. Little high, five, little high five and just keep on rolling. Yeah. That's our social distancing content for everybody, right? <laughs> so, yeah. You could stay here. I live right on the ocean, man. And I got, like I said, I got seven bikes. You'll love it. Perfect. Yeah. You don't have, you don't have mountains though, man. I know. But what we lack in, in, in elevation, we make up in that ocean sheer, man. I mean, it. I was riding this morning and I felt like I was going in reverse. Uh, the wind off that ocean was brutal. That, yeah, Probably nothing like Baja though, right? Talk to me about Baja. Baja is, I love Baja. And it's just a magical little sliver of land in Mexico. And so I've ridden from Vancouver to Cabo San Lucas on a regular bicycle. So I took the road, like the highway down Baja, which is yeah. fairly easy. You know, it's still hot and it's still a desert. But uh, two years ago, I went and did what's called the Baja Divide, which is an off-road route in Baja. And that is extremely difficult. It is some of the roughest roads I've ever ridden a bike on. And you're in the middle of nowhere a lot of the time. So you have to carry lots of water and food. Whereas on a normal bike tour, you're never far from a gas station or a grocery store because you're riding actual highways and roads and stuff. Baja, you're in the middle of nowhere all the time. So your bike weighs a ton because you need to carry all your water and all your food. And that makes it obviously very difficult. And then you, you add on the terrain and the heat and it, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one. That's probably the toughest bike tour I've ever done. Yeah. And what was the one? I think it was Baja I was watching. I mean, is it all your, not all your rides, but a good portion of your rides at the end, you, you give the bike to some, somebody, right? Yeah, I try to, I've ridden across Cuba and gave a bike away, gave a bike in Baja. Yeah. I forget. People remind me, they know better than, than I do. I'm <laughs> How I give away bikes, but yeah, if I'm able to, I like to be able to give a bike to a local person when I'm traveling. I think it's a cool way to just pay it forward and hey, yeah. give 
it's a venture machine to somebody and hopefully make their make their day and make their dreams come true. And uh, it, it, it's fun. I know you've done Baja a couple of times, so forgive me if I'm mistaken on, on the exact one, but I think on this particular ride, uh, something broke on your bike and you weren't able to actually finish the last leg of it. So you, you had, you were in this bike shop and, and you ended up giving the bike to, to somebody right there on the spot and, and pulling the plug. You had no other choice. And this guy Whoa. was just like, He's like, what? Are you kidding me? You're giving me this $3,000 bike? I was like, I was going to give it to somebody at the end of the ride anyway. My bike, unfortunately, broke in a way that I couldn't fix it in time. And it wasn't anything major. This kid was able to fix it, you know, two weeks later, ordering the right part in the United States. And yeah, it felt really good to be like, well, okay, this is the end of my ride. I mean, I was close enough to the end anyway, just about 100 miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's like, he sent me photos of himself on this awesome bike. And I was going to ask you that if, if the people follow up with you afterwards and go and show you kind of what they're doing. Yeah. And the guy I gave my bike to in Cuba, he still, you know, texts me all the time and, and you know, we're, we're good friends. That's awesome, man. That's really awesome. All right. Well, we're going to land this thing down. But before we do, let's leave the people with some nuggets of wisdom, Ryan. Now, don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> that doesn't apply here. I, I need I need worldly knowledge. That doesn't okay. apply in Florida. Okay. No, you know, actually, before before we get into some nuggets of wisdom, that phrase reminds me of your friend Dana. Yeah. She seems like a beautiful human being. She's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about her and how you met her before we head down the road. Yeah, this is kind of an unlikely friendship. She's quite a bit older than me. Mm-hmm. I met her. She owns a cafe in Boulder and I was eating breakfast there one day and she had been reading my articles in the local newspaper. So she recognized who I was and she goes up to me. She's like, Hey man, I know who you are. You've been to the pain cave. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. And she um, gave me a sweatshirt from her cafe, the Walnut cafe. And that's kind of what sparked up our friendship. And we got to know each other better and better than we started doing adventures together and she's definitely one of the most loving compassionate kind non-judgmental humans i've ever met and we've gone on some beautiful adventures together now and i look at her as like one of my best friends but also a mentor i mean she just that we need a lot more people on this planet like dana she treats people the way people should be treated and doesn't judge them and she leads with love and that's something i think a lot of people forget no doubt. Lead with love, lead with kindness. Everything else will work itself out. Exactly. Yeah. You know, she has the, a quote. Uh, I'm not going to say it right, so I'll ask you to please say it. But I think it's something about this is a new day and I've never been here before. Oh, yeah. That literally, Ryan, when I watched that, I started to get teared up because it just resonated with me so much. What's the exact quote? Do you have it? It's essentially that. And um, I don't know. It's. I remember in that moment, I was like, Dana, are you excited for today or what? And I'm filming her on camera. And she's like, Brian, I've never seen this day. And I just love that. It's such like a a simple way to look at life. Like, yeah, like you wake up every single day and you have a choice to be like essentially in a good mood and embrace everything. And it's always a new day. And you can wake up with a headache or bummed out or some other stresses and if you tell yourself it's going to be a crappy day, most likely it's going to be a crappy day. But yeah. if you wake up and you're like, okay, I'm going to make the most of this. And even if it's a hard day, I'm going to still try to find the positives in the situation and be grateful just for being on planet Earth. 
And yeah, maybe I'm climbing my bike up a giant mountain and my body is screaming and it hurts. But look what I'm, I'm doing. I'm riding my bike today in a beautiful land. Like this is a gift. We need to be more grateful. So that's essentially the theme of what she says in those moments. And it's, it's a good lesson to remember every day. Just, just be grateful. No doubt. You get to do this. You don't have to. You get to. Yeah. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. What's next on the horizon for Ryan Van Duzer? I know you got the YouTube channel. I believe you have a, a new TV series out. I saw one where you were doing something in Boston in the yeah. middle of winter paddleboarding. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So the idea with the Out There show, it's essentially, you know, a, just a higher production value version of my YouTube channel. <laughs> Work with the, like, with the whole crew. And the, but the idea is the same, getting people outside and challenging themselves and showing them that you don't need to be an elite athlete to try new things or to go paddleboarding or ride your bike a hundred miles. Like we can all essentially do these things. We can go at our own speed and have fun. And maybe you only go 10 miles of a, you know, hundred mile trip, but it's still, you're outside, you know, you're doing something, you're small steps. And so because of what's going on right now, the production has been shut down and I don't know when it's going to get fired up again. So I'm working on that, you know, where I put all my heart and my soul. I'm still creating content. Dana and I yesterday, we rode our bikes from Boulder to Denver, which is about 30 miles just to get a donut. That was our mission yesterday. Did you go to Voodoo Donut by chance? Voodoo Donuts, and I got the vegan donuts, my man. They're pretty good. I got the old dirty bastard. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah. But, so, you know, I'm always dreaming up new adventures. It's a little bit more difficult right now because of travel restrictions, but I'm looking at doing some big bike trips this summer. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'll figure something out. Hey, I was looking at your Reed bike. How heavy is that thing? My Reed, the full suspension mountain bike, is yeah. pretty heavy. It's like 35 pounds. Wow, that is heavy. That's rugged, though. I mean, it's very rugged. It's all aluminum. It's a beefcake. And it's, it's made in the USA. It's made 10 miles down the street from me. So it's cool. Fully custom. Is the weight most of the weight in the gearing system it has? Because I know it has a different uh, setup than, than most bikes, right? Well, you're thinking of so the Reeb that I rode on that Durango to Moab hut trip. That's yeah, cool. yeah. So that one is, I don't know how much that one weighs. I borrowed that bike. That one's not mine. Okay. But then I did buy a Reeb full suspension in January, and that has a, a normal drivetrain. Okay. But yeah, the pinion gearbox is what you're talking about, where all the yeah. gears are closed. Uh, that does add some weight, but only like a pound. So Okay, okay. Yeah. You love that system, though? I do like no maintenance at all. You can ride through mud and snow and ice and it doesn't affect anything. You don't need to use oil to grease the chain. It's just hands off and it always works. And I love when you're on a bike tour in the middle of nowhere, you don't want to deal with stuff breaking. And this pinion is essentially indestructible. I love it. Okay. So now let's get back to that life advice, those nuggets of wisdom. You've had some time to maybe kick that around in your mind here. To someone that is not getting off the couch yeah. and they're watching your channel, and they're getting some motivation, they get some inspiration from watching you. What do you say to that person to kind of nudge them over the edge to go, let's get outside? What's your advice to someone that's thinking about it? Yeah. So I get a lot of emails from people with this mm-hmm. same exact dilemma, essentially. And they give me many, many excuses why they can't do things. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a family and four kids and I don't have time or I'm overweight or, you know, I don't have the equipment or blah, 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 blah. And I always tell them it just starts with a, like a very small step, like just walking out your front door and just take off your shoes and walk through the grass barefoot and just feel the connection to the earth. I know this sounds very hippie, but it's true. Fresh air is like, it's been my medicine during this whole quarantine time. And I'm not on giant epic adventures. I'm just riding my bike around my house or going on a five mile run. So I always tell people just to start small. You don't want to injure yourself. You don't want to push it too far. I know people are, you know, they feel embarrassed that they're going to look stupid doing a new activity or they're going to be clumsy or they don't have the right clothing. And and none of that stuff really matters. As long as you're outside breathing fresh air, having a good time, that's it right there. And that will lead to other things. And you can worry about you know, gear and all that stuff down the road. You know, I started all my adventures with just very basic stuff and, you know, cheap, cheap gear. So yeah, that's essentially it. Just, just walk out your front door. Just start, right? Just, just begin. Yeah. Just, just start it. Whether, I mean, if you want to go on a five mile bike ride and you haven't ridden your bike in 30 years, you know, just get on your bike, pump up the tires. Maybe you have to borrow a bike if you don't have one and ride around the block and just see what it feels like. And I'm, I can almost guarantee that once you get on a bike or put running shoes on, you're going to feel that joy that you felt when you were a kid and you first rode your bicycle. And yeah, maybe you only ride around the block and that's really hard for you. But you go home that night and you sleep and you're excited and your body feels better in a way that it hasn't felt in a long time. And the next day you ride two laps around your your neighborhood and it just it'll go from there. It's true. It really is. And you know what? It's really rare that I see someone on a bike as I'm riding that isn't smiling. Yeah. It's just a smile machine. It just as soon as you grab the grips, it's as if it just pulls your cheeks up. Totally. You have to smile on a bike. It's fun. There are some times where the weather's bad or it's freezing cold. Or I'm like, ah, oh, I don't really want to jump on my bike or go running right now. But once you're out there, you will be psyched. And when you get home, you'll be happy that you did it. Yeah. I don't think you'll ever like go on a run or a bike ride or a walk or a hike and come home and be like, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I regret that. That was not fun. Never. But what you will regret is sitting on your couch, eating ice cream. Then you'll be like, oh, I feel like just so lazy and like garbage, you know? Yeah. Get out there and ride, people. Life at 15 miles per hour, right, Ryan? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know you got to get back to creating YouTube content, right? That's right. Uh, right now, yes. Yes. <laughs> so anyways, thank you, Ryan. You're a kind soul and you're spreading a positive message with your kindness and perspective. Thank you for all you to make this world a better place. I really appreciate you. The world needs more of Ryan Van Dusers. They really do. It means a lot to me, my friend, and I hope to meet you in real life someday. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everybody. That's Ryan Van Duzer. Be sure to check out his YouTube channel. He's got all kinds of subscribers and there is a reason for that. He brings the adventure to you, makes it feel like you're part of it. Until next time, peace, love, and plants. Motivated? I know that I am. Interestingly enough, it was only recently that I discovered Ryan and his YouTube channel, but I'm so thankful that I did. He reminded me that life is best when viewing it through a positive lens and that anything is truly possible. He also reminded me that this world is meant to be explored and that most people in this world are truly wonderful humans that simply want to live a happy life. It's not complicated. It's a noble and attainable goal. That is, if you simply make the choice to do so. Ryan's adventurous content aimed at inspiring people to get off their couches 
is a mission that I stand with, or should I say, pedal with. And his Freedom Machines are great vehicles that enable you to experience life at 15 miles per hour, allowing you to see so much more, all while getting even more connected with all that life has to offer. Oh, and the side effects of riding your bike, besides the smiles, are the numerous documented health benefits. I am truly humbled that Ryan took some time to share his story with us. And besides being an all-around good human being, Ryan has done some really epic travels by bike, which I've linked in my show notes. That is all for this week. I hope you enjoyed getting to learn a little bit about Ryan Van Duzer, and hopefully his message spoke to you like it did to me. Until next time, peace, love, and plants.